0: This is an official trigger warning. This episode is about female serial killers, some who have tortured people and some who have killed children. It is not a light listen, you have been warned. Oh, hello. It's been a little while, but I'm back. I moved house and was doing some generally annoying adult stuff, but I hope to be getting back on schedule with season two. When I think of serial killers, I think of Jack the Ripper Harold Shipman, Vlad the Impaler. Women don't usually come to mind straight away. This is exactly why I wanted to cover killer women, particularly those that predate 1900, though there is one that sneaks in today's episode after that. Quite a few that I wanted to cover seem to have the same pattern over and over, so I tried to pick one of each type of killer to keep it fresh. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. Our first serial killer resides in the bosom of mother Rome in the 1st century C.E. This was during the reign of Emperor Claudius. At this time in Rome, poison was the in thing. My mum might call it trendy, I might call it cool, and the youths might call it peng, I think. Anyway, poison is pretty great, right? No mess, less suspicion, hard to trace. Because of this, people of high importance were rightly shaking in their sandals with fear worrying that every bite of food or sip of wine might be their last. Many had to hire food tasters to check food before consuming it. In order to poison people, though, it was pretty handy to have a herbalist who could whip up a potent potent concoction for you when someone pissed you off a bit too much. In steps Locusta of Gaul, Gaul being in modern-day France and parts of Belgium and Germany. She was a skilled poisoner who appeared in Rome around the late 40s CE, and quite a bit of unrest was created when Emperors Tiberius and Caligula were murdered, creating power struggles. Locusta and her handy pestle and mortar were certainly kept busy with her upper-class clients, mixing poisons using arsenic, belladonna and deathcap mushrooms. She was arrested on a few occasions for both poisoning and child murder. What a lad. She wasn't kept in prison for long, though, because as we know, if you have money and influence, you can basically get away with anything. Totally not like today or anything. Moving on, as I said earlier, Claudius was the emperor and his wife was Agrippina. She had a son from her first marriage who was called Drumroll Please. It's only our old pal Nero, of absolute nutbag fame. I've mentioned him a few times before, but he was a sadistic prick, basically. Upon marrying Claudius, Agrippina was like, Claude, babe, you know what would be awesome? Making Nero your heir? He's totally not a psychopath or anything. Claudius thought this sounded great, so Nero was made his heir. Now that was done and dusted, Agrippina wasn't going to wait around for her husband to die of natural causes, no, no, no. So she swiftly started to plan her husband's demise. She had heard tale of this talented poisoner. Poisoness? Yes, I like it, poisonous. She employed Locusta to sprinkle some poison on Claudius food. But it was taking ages to work, so she was like, Locusta, hun. can you just smash a bit more on? Cheers. I don't want to alarm you with this next shocker, but Claudius died, and your boy Nero takes the throne, and everyone lived happily ever after. Okay, not quite. Nero did like Locusta, though, and appointed her his official poisoner, poisoness after reportedly pardoning her after she was put in prison following the Emperor's death. Nero had his deadly sights set on his stepbrother, which I forgot to mention, who was a young lad called Britannicus. Probably best to get him out of the picture quicker than you can kiss a duck just to make sure there weren't any challenges to Nero's power. Locusta was to concoct a poison which would kill Britannicus quick sticks. When the time came to poison Britannicus, it seemingly failed the first time. Locusta decided to use arsenic, but she only used a small dose in order to make the death seem more natural and not suspicious. The trouble was it didn't work. Nero was livid when the assassination didn't work quick enough and personally flogged Locusta and ordered her to give the poor lad the full dose. To ensure the effectiveness of the poison, Nero ordered Locusta to test it out on children until she got it right. When he was finally poisoned at dinner, Nero put his writhings down to the epilepsy he had suffered from birth and ordered no one to touch him. Ooh, what a nasty bugger. Following the successful event, Nero showered Locusta with gifts, servants and massive estates to call her own. She became in charge of a school of poison, I've made up that name but it sounds like that's what it was, and was sent pupils to teach her skills of deadly herbals. She was granted permission to test her poisons on slaves, animals and criminals. Sounded like she was having a whale of a time, but unfortunate for her and fortunately for everyone else, Nero killed himself in 68 CE following a rebellion because he was being such an asshole. If you want to know a bit more about this, I talked about Nero in my guest episode on the Plantropology podcast, where I talked to the host and wonderful person Vikram about the history of gardens. I'll pop a link in the show notes. Any friend of Nero's was not a friend of the new Emperor, Galba, who rounded up his cronies, which had very much included Locusta, and sentenced them to death. You might hear that she was killed by being raped to death by a giraffe. No, really. This is a load of rubbish, though, because all the sources say that she was executed, but we don't know how and we don't know when. Keep it classy. Next, we're visiting Transylvania of Dracula fame, It was a principality within the Kingdom of Hungary at the time we're visiting, which is in the 16th century. Erzabet Bathory, the Hungarian version of Elizabeth, was born in 1560 to an incredibly wealthy family which included the King of Poland, who was her uncle. She received an excellent education, was beautiful and probably couldn't ask for more in the blessings of life department. Well, except for the fact that she was a certified psychopath, that wasn't ideal. Though she grew up in wealth, it didn't at all sound like sunshine and lollipops for her, as she was witness to some pretty dark stuff. She was there during the execution of a local man accused of selling his child to the Turks, who Hungary was at war with at the time. The executioner literally sewed him into the belly of a horse. I did an executions episode and I did not come across this method in my research, so let's have a little description now. The victim would have their limbs broken to prevent them from just ripping out of the horse when left alone. The carcass would be left out to rot and the idea was the animals would be like, oh, buffet time! This was assuming they didn't suffocate on the noxious gases being emitted from the poor horse. This was apparently all too amusing for Erzabet, who reportedly giggled at the man's head poking out of the horse's belly before ceremonially, ceremoniously being shoved in for good. That kid is going to be totally normal. End of story, right? Wrong! At the ripe old age of 11, she was betrothed to a fancy count named Ferenj Nadejdi. I'm really sorry about that. I I, I tried my best with that pronunciation. Apologies if I butchered it. And she married him at the age of 14. Accounts that I've read said that she had a baby when she was 13 with a low-born lover called Ladislav Bende. I mean, a 13-year-old can't have consensual sex. I know things were different then and once a girl had had a period, it was all systems go. But I can't imagine a 13-year-old saying, oh yeah, go on then, sounds fantastic, mate. I searched around for more info as quite a few articles on her just glossed over it like, yeah, she had a baby out of wedlock at 13, whatevs. When she was 50 years old, she accused him of drugging her and raping her. Some sources say that this was 37 years after the event, so disputes it. But as we know, just because the time has passed doesn't mean it didn't happen. I can't find his age anywhere, but what is mentioned though is that the Count had the bloke castrated and torn apart by dogs. A small amount of justice I suppose. The daughter she had was hidden from view and that seems to be the last word about her. During her marriage with the Count, he was busy being an army dude and spent a lot of time away fighting the Turks, leaving Erzabet to run the estate. This was no problem for her. She was sharp as a pin and had many academic interests including anatomy, biology and religion. So running an estate was easy-peasy. Fast forward to 1604. After 29 years of marriage, the Count died at the age of 48, leaving Erzabet a widow which is around the time that her behaviour started getting absolutely out of hand. For a while, locals had been gossiping about the young women and girls that had gone to the castle and were never seen again. There seemed to be an endless need for Elizabeth to tempt the local peasant girls with promises of employment as servants and maids. Not exactly important people in the eyes of the law who didn't pay much attention to the rumours, because who cares about poor people, really? Definitely not the people in power, that's for sure. After a while, the continued disappearances did start to take the piss. So when she was questioned, she claimed that the girls had died of cholera. What a convenience it was for killers of the past to just blame some common disease or widespread epidemic at the time. So what were these rumours? Well, the short version is that she was torturing and killing young girls. It wasn't until she started fucking about with noble families' daughters that she made a rod for her own back. As well as servant girls, she also took noble girls with the intention, at least in the family's eyes, to teach them how to be a lady, how to look after a household and how to be- behave in court life. Elizabeth, being an absolute psychopath, just saw more fodder for her sordid activities. The noble families complained around 1610 to the King of Hungary, I suppose that's putting it lightly, and he was forced to intervene and investigate. The plot thickens, as she wasn't alone in these crimes. If any of you watch any period dramas, you'll know how hard it would have been to keep any secrets in any of these grand houses, with so many staff wandering about poking their noses in everywhere. She had at least two accomplices, who were her servants too, and they helped her with the torturing and killing. According to the servants, who were tortured themselves by the order of the king, confessed and started to spill the beans on exactly what was going on. They told of her stabbing victims or biting their breasts, hands, faces and arms, cutting them with scissors, sticking needles into their lips or burning them with red-hot irons, coins or keys. Some were beaten to death and some were starved. There are also legends that she used to bathe in their blood, but this seems to have been added on to further sensationalise the crimes. Not like they needed any embellishment, Jesus. The numbers vary, but around 600 deaths are attributed to Elizabeth, making her the most prolific known female serial killer in history. The servants were sentenced to death and Elizabeth herself was locked in a windowless room and kept in solitary confinement for the rest of her life. She wasn't put on trial though because her family was far too important. She died not long after, in 1614. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how did your garden grow? Don't actually like growing plants, says Mary Ann Cotton. I like growing money. Not quite as catchy as the original, but a crazy enough story to treat you to. Mary was born on Halloween in 1832 in County Durham. That is in the north of England, for those not familiar. In 1852, at the age of 20, she married a chap called William Mowbray and popped out a load of kids over the next ten years. Sadly, six of the nine had died. We think it was nine. The records from this time leave the exact number of their children up for debate. The children were said to have died of gastric fever, which is a bacterial infection. It causes aches, pains and extreme tiredness, a headache and a cough. After a few weeks, the sufferer will succumb and die. William, being a sensible man, took out a life insurance policy to protect his family should anything bad befall him or any of his children, with different amounts able to be claimed for the family member if any of them died. Not long afterwards, sadly, William died, along with two of her other children, leaving her with just one. Mary-Anne received the insurance money and she left her little girl with her mum to look after and sought work elsewhere. She married again not long after and became Mrs George Ward. A year later, you know where this is going. He was dead, and luckily for Marianne, he had also taken out a life insurance policy. What are the chances of that? After that, she found work as a housekeeper for a recent widower named James Robinson. He had five children with his wife before she passed away, but shortly after Mary's employment, one of his children dies of... You guessed it, gastric fever. A year later, Mary was called home to look after her mum, who wasn't doing so well. Marianne doesn't seem like the person you'd want nursing you, because the mum died about a week later. She picked her young daughter up and took her back to Robinson's house. A short while later, her daughter and two more of Robinson's children were dead. Goodness, Ann has the worst look in the world, doesn't she? The two married and had two children, with one surviving. Two years later, her husband discovered her stealing from him, which I find kind of weird because how can you steal from your own husband when you get married those funds are shared? But anyway, he did not like that, along with the fact that she kept being like, you know what would be cool is if you took out a life insurance policy. He was like, that's a weird thing for you to keep going on about. Off you pop, you don't live in my house anymore. Bye. Unconcerned about the fact that she was still married to Robinson, she set her eyes on yet another widower called Fred Cotton, who was a brother of one of her mates and married him. That same year, his sister, her mate, and his youngest child died. By the end of the next year, her husband was gone, as well as two more of her children, leaving her with one seven-year-old stepson called Charles. I hope you're keeping count. She had received a pretty nice payout following all of these deaths, though. Good God, this woman! She got pregnant by some relatively wealthy bloke, but he was not interested in her more than that because she had a stepson. This is where she had fucked up. She allegedly said to an official... I won't be troubled long, with the death of the boy coming soon after. Finally, someone realised that this was all a bit fishy and notified the police. The child had a post-mortem and guess what? He had enough arsenic in his stomach to kill a cow. Two of the cotton children were exhumed and they had succumbed to arsenic poison too. Marianne had been poisoning her husbands and children for quite a few years by this point and getting away with it. Her method was to put arsenic in in tea using a black teapot, which, of course, she never used herself. This teapot is actually in the Beamish Museum, which is in her hometown. There is a series on Amazon Prime called Dark Angel, which follows Marianne and her callous murders. She is played by the delightful Joanne Froggitt, who plays Mrs Beards, Anna, the housemaid, in Downton Abbey. She is portrayed in the series as a woman disappointed in her lot and always striving for something more than she felt that she deserved. She retained her innocence and tried to claim that she, it was the arsenic in the wallpaper that had caused the deaths. Arsenic was used at the time to dye basically anything green and wallpaper with arsenic in did make people sick. This didn't cut the mustard however because the evidence, evidence was so strong against her. She was convicted and sentenced to hanging. When the day came in March 1873 she had the bad luck of having the prison's shittest hangman. The trap was not high enough, so the fall did not break her neck, which meant that the executioner had to push down on her shoulders. It took three minutes for her to die. What a shame. The true number of Marianne's victims can never be known, but most sources think it was at least 21 people, with most of them being her children and husband's. She is thought to be Britain's first female serial killer. This one is Dark. Well, they're all dark, but this one is DARK. But I did want to dive into a bit of the societal causes that enabled this next woman to do these deeds for so long. To get to the issues of the 19th century, we have to go back to the 18th century in England. In 1733 in Britain, a poor law was instated which said that the biological father of any baby was financially responsible for a baby he created. If he was a massive dick and decided that he didn't actually fancy bearing the consequences of his actions, the woman could have him arrested and thrown in prison until he was like, okay, fine. Local authorities helped support the woman and her baby until the bloke paid up. As this didn't always work out in the end, the local authorities were like, yo, guys, this is costing a lot of money. Is there a way we can just fuck off these costs? We could force the father to marry the woman. High fives were given all round for such a good solution. Zoom forward a while to 1833 and some guys decided to do a poor law report and a commission report of bastardy. Yes, you heard that right. And they found that giving these women financial aid was basically creating a community of immoral women sleeping around. <laughs> it's far too easy for them to get relief. I say, Tiberius, we are practically giving the women money to be slags. Side note, slag is a completely sexist and gross term. I know, I know, if we take it away, there'll be less bastards around and society will be moral again. Great. So that's just what they did. They made it the sole financial responsibility of the woman to pay for an illegitimate child until it was 16. Okay, so if the woman had no money, then what? She could always drop the baby off at an orphanage, right? Wrong. Illegitimate children were seen to be stained by the immorality of the parents and they were going to taint the children in the orphanage that were of of acceptable birth. The majority of orphanages denied illegitimate children, so that option's gone. The mother could not work with an illegitimate baby in tow. The grim reality was putting the child in the workhouse, infant side, or turning to a baby farmer. This is where our next serial killer comes in. It's 1896 in Victorian London and the body of a baby named Helena Fry was found in the Thames. As you can imagine from what I've just gone into, this wasn't something that was particularly uncommon. Though this time the paper the baby was wrapped in had an address on and the police were about to discover something that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. I mean, who knows what sort of things the Victorian police force were used to see but I can't imagine much of it being worse than this. Upon entering the house of baby farmer Amelia Dyer, the police found no less than 50 deceased babies stashed in the pantry under her bed and goodness knows where else. She said to the police officer, You'll know all mine by the tape around their necks. Jesus Christ. It turns out that Dyer had been a baby farmer for almost 30 years. I keep saying baby farmer, but I haven't explained what it is yet. Dyer, and many other people, would put seemingly innocent advertisements in the paper for a child wanted. Ads read things like, Married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms £10. And basically, more versions much of the same. Dr Charlotte Bayer, a lecturer at the University of Gloucester, said in a BBC article that at the time baby farming was widespread. So baby farmers preferred young babies because the morality rate for babies was so high in England at the time that it was much easier for babies to disappear without notice or suspicion. Honest to God, right? Neighbours can be nosy as fuck. Don't tell me that on a London, busy London street people don't know what is going on in their neighbours' houses with thin as fuck walls. How the hell did no one notice their babies going in and never coming out again? Was Victorian life so horrible that everyone was too busy with their own misery and couldn't possibly notice the tragedies happening on their own doorstep? Well, she didn't just stay in one place, which is how she got away with it for so long. She changed her name and address regularly once rumours started about the seemingly nice lady whose adopted babies kept disappearing. Once on trial, she confessed to the killings but pleaded insanity. While she was in custody, she played the part of the pious Christian, though the prosecution argued that that was just a ploy to fool the jury. It was the jury that took just minutes to find her guilty of murder, and her plea of insanity was thrown in the bin. She was sentenced to hang and went to the gallows in June of 1896. A lock of her hair is still kept in the Thames Valley Police's archive. In the years following the Dyer case, a number of Acts of Parliament, including the Infant Life Protection Act and the Children's Act, were passed. These included requirements that local authorities must be notified with full details and within 48 hours of any change of custody or death of a child aged under 7. Rules surrounding adoption and fostering were strengthened considerably and baby farming became a thing of the past. The last serial killer on my list is Italian soap maker Leonardo Changchuli. She was born in Italy in the late 1800s and had a troubled childhood, attempting suicide twice, though I couldn't find any sources suggesting the cause of this. She married in 1917 and had become pregnant 17 times. Good Lord! Sadly for her, she had three miscarriages and lost another ten children in their youth. She was left with four children and, understandably, she became very protective of them. She was a superstitious woman and frequently visited fortune tellers, and it's said that one fortune teller told her, In your right hand I see prison. In your left, a criminal asylum. Imagine the mental toll it must have had on this woman to have lost so many children, and then hearing that. It's enough to throw anyone's mental health out of the window. In 1939, her eldest son enlisted in the Italian army to fight in the Second World War. Due to her superstitious nature, she got the idea that the only thing that would keep him safe was human sacrifice. Yes, that is where we are going. Leonardo's first victim was a local single woman named Faustina Set. She invited her around promising to be a proper good matchmaker. She convinced the poor woman to write letters to her family telling them the good news that she would be eloping with the fictional man abroad. Instead of a holiday though, she was drugged with laced wine and murdered with an axe. How did she get rid of the body? Well, she chopped it up and the following is taken directly from her police statement. I threw the pieces into a pot. I did seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all the ingredients together. I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. As if that wasn't bad enough, she also took Faustina's life savings. Unfortunately, this sacrifice didn't seem like enough, so she lured her next victim, Francesca Sovi, in with promises of a teaching job abroad. Yes, we're seeing a pattern here. She was also convinced to write letters basically telling friends not to worry about her. She did the exact same thing drugged her, killed her with an axe, chopped her up, baked her, and nicked her money. Her third and thankfully last victim was a fairly well-known soprano called Virginia Cachapo. Again, she was promised work abroad and the same thing happened to her. However, she obviously had gotten bored with baking her victims into cakes and decided to turn her into soap. And I quote, She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbours and acquaintances. The cakes too were better. That woman was really sweet. Ugh. Virginia's sister in law thought there was something fishy going on and reported Leonardo to the police. At first, she denied everything, but the police suggested the blame might lie with her son. We know how she feels about keeping her son safe, so she finally admitted to the murders. She was sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum. She died in 1970 at the age of 79. The pot she boiled her victims in, along with her murder weapons, were donated to the Criminology Museum in Rome. Well, that was a cheery one, wasn't it? I want to take a second to thank some of my favourite friends, Dagmar and Jenny, for their grisly suggestions, some of which were, would you believe, too grim to cover. There were also so many other killers that I found that had poisoned people, including a massive poison ring in ancient Rome that apparently consisted of around 100 women. There are also other the baby farmers, other insurance claimers, other sadistic killers. The women's crime were unusual, but they certainly were not alone. One thing to take away from today's episode is don't trust any women with a teapot, axe, or anyone with a suspicious looking vial. Actually, just don't let anyone near you, just to be safe. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout out in a future episode, leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I've set up a coffee account and I've popped the link in the show notes. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create, and I do everything myself. So if you enjoy Across the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee. Instead of reviews today, I want to dedicate this episode to my number one fan, Flazity. He's having a bit of a poopy time at the moment, but I want to take the opportunity to say that I really appreciate you being so kind about the podcast and you help keep me going. Get well soon, matey. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Across the Ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages.